Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17b through 19. Again, I've titled this, What to Pray for One Another, and we are in part two of this segment. Last week, we were in part one. And that was Ephesians 3, 14 through 17a. As we look at this passage today, I'm reminded of President John F. Kennedy's uh, inaugural address. As he said to the nation, he said, Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And I want to kind of take that and restate it another way. Ask not what the church can do for you. Ask what you can do for the church. And there are many things you and I can do for the church. As believers who love the Lord, one of the things that we can definitely do for the church is pray for the church. The church consists of people, the body of Christ, believers who love the Lord. And so when you pray for the church, You're called to pray for the people that make up the church. How do you know who the people are? Well, the people that are present here every week after week are the people that you pray for. And if you want to know more, there is a directory, and you can request a directory, a church directory, and you can go through that name after name and actually pray for at least three people a day, and at the end of the week, guess what? You've covered a lot. Make it your habit to pray and see what amazing things happen as a result of prayer. And if you're wondering as to what to pray for one another, the Apostle Paul gives us some guidelines in regard to this in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. And our text this morning is found in one such passage, and this is the second half of Ephesians 3, 17b through 19. It's the second prayer that you see in the book of Ephesians. His first prayer was found in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. It was a prayer for enlightenment. This prayer is a prayer for empowerment or enablement. Prayer is the foundation for spiritual growth. Prayer is what the Lord did. Every time he did something, he carried on ministry, he finished ministry, he went to his Father in heaven to pray. He went up on the mountains to pray. He went by himself to pray. He prayed at all times. Let me give you a biblical understanding of prayer before we get into this passage. Not praying for other believers, according to the Bible, is a sin. And I say that because 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23 reads this, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. So here is the prophet Samuel for saying it would be a sin against the Lord that I would be ceasing to pray for you. And we can imply from that that today for us as believers, when you and I do not pray for one another, it is a sin. Second, praying for other believers glorifies God. And we see that in Psalm 50, verse 15. It says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. So praying for other believers glorifies God. Third, praying for other believers reflects the priority of the early church. It's what the early church did. And we read about that in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. That's what they did. It was a non-negotiable. They prayed for one another. And marvelous things happened as they prayed for one another. It would be proper for us to say that if we do not see things happening in our church, it's because we fail to pray for one another, neglecting to pray for one another. Fourthly, praying for God's people will lead them to change. Colossians chapter 1, 
verses 9 through 11, we read, From the day we heard of you, we have not ceased to pray for you. Meaning, they did not stop praying for them since the day they heard about them. Asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that they would be filled with understanding of God's word. And he goes on to say, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So you want people to change, you pray for them. And I know, I'm sure, that you have people in mind even right now. You so desire people to change. Well, it's not just praying that people will change. Even for your change, it is good to go to the Lord in prayer. So let us commit ourselves to praying regularly for the church. This is what the Bible states in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 17. It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, giving thanks to God in all circumstances. Why? This is the will of God concerning you. Pray without ceasing. It means you're doing that all the time. You may be laying down to sleep, you spend time in prayer. As you wake up, you spend time in prayer. You, you may be busy in the kitchen, you're cooking, but yet you're praying in your mind. You're driving down the freeway, yet you're praying. Rather than thinking of all the anxious thoughts in your mind or working through anxiety, or anger, or bitterness, praying in your mind, praying for other believers, praying for people who offend you, praying for people who hurt you, praying for people who love you, praying for your children. It could be while you're working. And that's why First Thessalonians chapter 5 says, pray without ceasing. So having said that, Let's get into Ephesians chapter 3. And if you see verses 14 through 15, this is exactly what Paul says for this reason. And we looked at the reason because that's what Paul began in verse 1. The reason goes back all the way to chapter 2, verse 22. That is, you're being built together. You're a dwelling place of God. And because of this, for this reason, Paul's response is, I bow my knees before the Father. He's submitting himself to the Father. And he says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He's the father of the believers. As believers, we are his adopted children. We call him up our father. And then he goes on into the details of the prayer. He says, that according to the riches of his glory. Not from his riches, but according to the riches of his glory. He may grant you. That was the first heading we looked at. He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner man. And we said, that was the first heading. We pray so that your inner man would be strengthened. You pray for other believers. You do not know what to pray for other believers. This is where you start. Pray that their inner man would be strengthened. And he's very specific here in his prayer. He's specific and he's saying, you know, God doesn't lack the resources. He's praying that he would grant them according to his riches. And as he's very specific in his prayer, he isn't praying to change their circumstances. He isn't praying, Lord, somehow release me from prison because that was the need of the hour. He was in prison. It was not a general prayer that, God, you bless them. God, you give them peace. God, you give them joy. Those are good things to pray for. But here he's very specific. Paul wants them to depend upon power for living the Christian life. And Paul is very clear that that power that he is praying for is something that has to be granted to them. 
It is not a power that is going to be self-driven. It is not a power that is going to be somehow generated by a result of one's willpower. Paul is praying in verse 16 that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you. God has to grant it to us. And, and he may grant you to be strengthened with what? With power. We need that power continually. You and I cannot live our Christian lives apart from this power. And this power that we're talking about is resurrection power. This power that we're talking about is power raised to the time zillion. I don't know if that will contain it again. It is unlimited power. It is a power that raised Christ from the dead. And Paul is praying that you be strengthened with power. How? Through his spirit. Through the Holy Spirit of God. Where? In your inner being. In your inner man. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, he reminds us that our inner man is to be renewed. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Why? Although our outer self is wasting away, yet our inner self is being renewed day by day. We have an outer man and we have an inner man. And I know that all of us take a lot of time celebrating our outer man. We take care of our outer man, we feed our outer man, we clothe our outer man. We do everything best that our outer man is taken care of. But one thing that you and I sometimes forget is that our outer man is falling apart. We are growing old each day. Physically, our outer man is going downhill. But our inner man is, on the contrary, the spiritual part of our lives, and that is to be renewed. Our inner man is the real you. It's synonymous to the heart of man. Our deeds, our actions, our reflection of what is going on in the heart. And Paul is praying that our inner man needs to be strengthened with power. How? Through the Holy Spirit. Why our inner man? Because God changes our outward behavior through our inner man. As we said last week, behavior transformation without heart transformation is catastrophic. That's what the secular psychological programs out there do. That's what anger management, that's what Al-Qaeda does. Just changing your outward behavior. Your outward behavior will only change if your heart is changed. That's why we always aim for the heart of man. What is in your heart comes out. And this is why Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies or present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable unto him. And then he goes on to say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewal of your mind. Be transformed. And as you strengthen your inner man, you will find that there is a decreasing frequency of sin in your life. Meaning you will sin less and less. I did not say that there will be an absence of sin. That will not happen on this side of eternity. An absence of sin will only happen when you see Christ face to face. But that does not either mean that you can live life the way you want to, taking grace as a license to sin. Because true grace, true transforming grace, and I said transforming because saving grace is always transforming grace. True saving grace always transforms you. And so here, this is the first part of Paul's prayer. He says that Christ 
may strengthen your inner man through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he continues in 17, he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And we looked at that last week. What does it mean by Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith? It means Christ would be at home in your life. As you confess your sins, as you cleanse yourself, as you purify yourself, as you repent of your sins, and as you live your lives in obedience to God's written word, Christ would be more at home in your lives. That your heart would be more like a suitable place, like, not like a hotel room where you occasionally go in and, and stay. It'll be like your home, a permanent place. He would be more at home in your lives. So you've got to strengthen your inner man. That's the first prayer. And that's a great prayer to pray for people. As you're thinking about other people, as you're going to turn to the directory tomorrow or tonight, as you spend time in prayer for the church, that's the first thing you can pray. What am I going to pray for? What am I going to pray for the pastor? Or what am I going to pray for so-and-so person in the church? The first thing, pray that God would strengthen their inner man. Pray that they would be motivated. And how are you motivated to strengthen your inner man? It doesn't just happen. It, 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 there's, a, there's a trail. You start thinking right. And as you start thinking right, your emotions are stirred. And as your emotions are stirred, you start volitionally acting upon it. Does that make sense? So you pray, Lord, help them to think right. Help them to, to meditate on God's word. And as they meditate on God's words, that their emotions would be stirred, that they'll be awed and overwhelmed by the love of God. And as they're overwhelmed and awed by the word of God, that they would in turn be motivated to act upon it with their will. So, you pray that their mind would be strengthened. They'll be able to do that by feeding on the word of God. And as you feed on the Word of God, the more you feed on the Word of God, the more you're yielding to the Spirit of God, and the more you yield to the Spirit of God, the more you're being filled with the Spirit of God. Remember Colossians 3.16? Filling your mind with the Word of God. How else can you strengthen your inner man? Well, through prayer, obviously, but through regularly meeting together with one another. For corporate worship. Even as you're seated here today and you're listening to the message being proclaimed as we are in the Word of God, your inner man is being strengthened. Well, that doesn't just happen once a week. It should happen every day of the week. Just like you feed your outer man, just like you eat your breakfast, just like you eat your lunch, just like you snack. You've got to feed your inner man regularly. Through regular Bible studies, we offer Bible studies almost every day of the week. I mean, you could get discipled here in this church. You find someone and say, help me, disciple me. We have fellowship. You can fellowship with one another. Take people out for lunch after church and fellowship. And when you fellowship with one another, rather than talking about the, the big game that's going to come or what's on TV or politics, Say, this is what I did as I was reading God's Word. This is what happened to me. This is what triggered. This is what came to my mind, and it really blessed me. And I want to share, what did you think about as you spent time in God's Word? You see, you're ministering to one another through the Word of God. These are all ways you can strengthen your inner man. And as your strength, inner man is being strengthened, Christ will be at home in your life. Are, is Christ at home in your life today? Is he? Ask yourself this question. Are you cleaning up your life on a day-to-day -day basis? On a daily, moment-by-moment -moment basis? Are you confessing your sins? Meaning, are you keeping a short account with God? As one author mentioned, if your heart were a divided home, like you have many rooms and all of those rooms are having functions of its own. And, and if you were to just say to the Lord, Lord, you can, you can take this room, this room, this room, this room, but don't take this one. This is locked. This is only for me. Christ is not at home in your life. Christ has to be completely at home in your life.
That means he got to take control of every single room of your heart or your life, as that author mentioned. Jesus said that in John chapter 14, verse 23. He said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then he goes on to say, my father will love him. And then he goes on to say, we will come and make our home with him. And that happens as you strengthen your inner man. That was just a review of last week. And now let's get into our second request. And this happens to be in this passage today that we're going to look at. Verses 17b through 19a. The first heading being, are you rooted and grounded in love? Which would be the second heading if you were looking at the entire session. Are you rooted and grounded in love? And let me read that for you. It says that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul is alluding to love here as a main principle of the Christian life. He says that you being rooted and grounded in love. We know that love is the main principle. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13 reads, Faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of this is love. Everything is founded on love. But the conundrum, but the problem is, you and I cannot comprehend love. You and I cannot even begin to scratch the surface of love unless and until we have known the love of God. Unless and until God's love has been poured out into our lives, you and I cannot comprehend love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 reads, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Love begins with God. You and I will never be able to love God or love others until we have been established and anchored in the love of God. You have to know the love of God in order to be rooted and grounded in love. In other words, you have to be a believer. You have to be born again. You are to be born from above. You have to be saved from your sins. You have to be a child adopted into his kingdom in order to know love. This is why I always encourage in my counseling when I talk to people, I always want to emphasize, do they know the gospel? Because if they, you do not know the gospel, if you are not truly saved, then you do not know love. And so I want to encourage you that if you do not know God, that seek Him. Why? Because the Bible states that we are all sinners. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All, everyone. Not, a, not no one in this world is everyone is a sinner. Fallen as a sinner and needs a Savior. And as sinners, what people do is their mind is darkened. They're rebellious people. Proverbs chapter 17, 11 says you're rebellious. Ephesians 4, 17, your mind is darkened in your understanding. I mean, without Christ, people are at enmity with God. They show their fist against God. They hate God. They don't seek God. But when you cry out to God for mercy, God gives you the gift of eternal life. And when you trust in Jesus Christ and His death on the cross for your sins, Christ takes the wrath of God away from you. That's what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He says, For our sake He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, as you trust in his, penalty, his death on the cross for your sins, and you begin to rest in Him, that's salvation, that's being born again, that's the gift from above. God is the one who does that. It's monergistic. 
It's not a team effort. It's not a joint effort between you and God. God is the one who does that. It's the work of God and God alone. He takes away your, your heart, stony heart, and gives you a heart of flesh. He seals you with the promised Holy Spirit, and you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in you. And now that you're born again, you're able to love. You're able to love. Love God and love one another. Come back with me to Ephesians 3, 17. And so he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted, that's the passage we're looking at now, that you being rooted and grounded in love. There are two metaphors there. Being rooted and being grounded in love. To be rooted in love means it's, it's like a tree that is deeply rooted. Like the roots have gone deep into the depths of the earth. It makes the tree so strong that if there were to be a storm that would come against the tree, the trees are so embedded into the, into the soil so deep that it can withstand the storms of life. And he goes on to use another metaphor there. He says to be grounded in love. It, it, it demonstrates pictures of solid building. A building that has foundation that goes deep down into the bedrock. So if you want to build a, a skyscraper that's about 13 story high, you want to dig deep so that it goes 13 stories down. It's a strong foundation. Who is your foundation? It's Christ. That's what we sing. It says, it is Christ, the solid rock on which I stand. Paul is reminding you by use of these metaphors, he's talking about a deeper and more permanent love. And as we grow deeper and deeper into God's love, and as we know Him more and more, guess what? We are able to have love as the main principle of our life. We are able to love Him more, and we are able to love others more. Everything we do in our lives, from the point of studying God's Word, to the point of obeying God's Word, to the point of serving fellow believers, is all motivated by love. It's not something you do because you, you're forced to do. It's you're motivated by the love of God. What is this love? It's a Greek word agape. It's self-giving love. It's sacrificial love. The love that comes from God is, is not an emotion. It's not a sentimentalism. It's not a feeling. It's an action verb. And I call it an action verb because 1 John 3.16 states this clearly. He says, by this we know that he laid, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And in the same way, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. That's love. That's sacrificial love. We are called to love people. Demonstrated in caring for people, serving people, giving to people. It's sacrificial. I mean, it's easy to love people who are clones of us, right? Oh, we have no problems with that. But we are called to love our enemies. Matthew chapter 5 verse 44 says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That means we are called to love people who hurt us. We are called to love people who betray us. We are called to love people who deceive us, to people who disappoint us, for people who wound us, people who reject us, not just once, twice, who sin against us, not once, but many, many, many times. This is what Paul says in Philippians 2, 4 through 5. And we read this all the time. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
This is what Christ did. This is the demonstration of the gospel. Christ humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. He made himself of nothing. He became obedient to death, even death on the cross. For what? For good people? Huh. No, no. For wicked, rebellious people like me. And now, when I have to demonstrate love, my patience runs over, far from me. See, I got to love them? I did that once. I did that twice. Did that for two years. For three years. Now, Nana. Don't tell me to do that again. You know, beloved, we are, believe, we, are, we are told to copy, immolate our master. And loving others means dying to yourselves. It's a lifelong struggle. It's a lifelong struggle. Why? Because we are born that way. We are self-centered people. We are self-centered, we are self-oriented, we are self-loving, we are self-praising, we are self-occupying individuals. You say, Pastor, I'm a loving person. Let me ask you. What happens when people, when you don't get your way? What happens when people don't praise you? What happens when people don't listen to you? What's your response when you think that people are taking advantage of you? What's your response when you get hit by a sudden unexpected trial? What happens when people don't go along with the way you want things to happen? What happens when you display a love to someone and that someone betrays you and slanders you over and over again? What happens when you're serving and no one takes notice of that or even say thank you and your feelings get hurt? What happens? I don't want to give you the answer. Ask yourself the question. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 4 reads, Love is patient, love is kind. That's not envy or boast. It's not arrogant. And folks, in order to demonstrate a love that is patient, a love that is kind, a love that's not envy, a love that's not boast, a love that's not arrogant, a love that's not easily provoked, you have to be rooted and grounded in love. Only someone who is rooted and grounded in love will be able to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. In order to weather the storms of life or an earthquake that comes into your life, you need to be rooted and grounded in love. It means you need to sink deep into the love of God and build your foundations deep into the love of God. Only then are you able to love others with the love of God. Paul continues in verse 18. If you're in your Bibles, Ephesians 3. Verse 18, he says that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. May have strength means you are trying to accomplish and that is not something easy. Yes, I told you, you need to be rooted and grounded in love and you need to be loving as Christ loved. It's not easy. It is difficult. And that's why Paul says here, I'm praying that you may, be, you may have strength. We need strength. We need power. We need the ability, and Paul uses the word comprehend. The Greek, the word for English, comprehend, is the word katalambano. It's, it's a compound word. It means to seize or grasp it and make it your personal possession. That's the intensity. It's not merely look at it. It's not merely take it. It's take it and make it your personal possession. 
And so Paul is saying here that you may have the strength to lay hold of or comprehend, and comprehend what? He continues in verse 18. Comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So that's what you need the strength to do, to hold off or comprehend and understand the love of Christ, the, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. I want you to understand that this is amazing because you and I may think, well, we know about the love of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he writes, we are like children paddling at the edge of an ocean. There are depths of God's Word that you and I do not know, that we haven't discovered. And Paul is praying that you would be able to comprehend the love of Christ, and then he says, with all the saints. That's important. The saints are the believers. They are the community of believers. And to truly understand the magnitude of Christ's love for us, it happens in the midst of the saints and the community of believers. Christ's love becomes all the more tangible in the context of a local church. It is in the context, it is in the communion of saints that you and I are able to comprehend the love of Christ. I mean, you have all kinds of people in the church. Some of us are like porcupines. We prick when people come close to us. I mean, by ourselves, we are adorable. I mean, me, myself, and I are perfect. But you bring you, and the equation changes. Therefore, Paul says, you need to really understand all this. It is in the context of a local church where the love for Christ is forged into your life. You're able to comprehend the love of Christ in a much deeper manner. How? As you learn to forbear with one another. As you learn to be patient with one another. As you learn to be kind to one another. As you learn to forgive one another. Let's keep going in verse 18. That you may have the strength with, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. Paul is using dim dimensions here. He's describing the immensity of Christ's love. He's encouraging the believers to meditate on this incomprehensible love. Why are those dimensions there? As we look at those dimensions there, let's look at the breadth. The breadth of Christ's love. It comprehends the great multitude that's there, beyond number. Every people from every nation, every tribe, every language group. It reaches around the world. That's the breadth of Christ's love. The length of Christ's love extends from eternity to eternity. We were chosen, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the world. That we would be holy and blameless, and that will continue into eternity. This is what Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3 reads. I have loved you with an everlasting love. This love was always there, and this love will never end. And why? That we would be holy and blameless, lifted far above the temptations of the world that so easily besets us. Remind yourselves of the length of Christ's love for you. When you go through those temptations and you're struggling in those temptations, Remind yourselves that Christ's love for you began not just now, it began in eternity past. And will continue into the future. And that's what we read in Jeremiah 31.3, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Then he goes on to the height of Christ's love. 
It lifts us up from our, from our position here and exalts us in the heavenly places into the throne room of God. And the depths of God's love, the depths of God's love caused him to leave heaven and come down to earth to be born a sinful man. That's the depth of his love. It was not just man dying for man. It was God dying for man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Christ reaching down all the way down to where we were in our sin. As we were living in sin, rebellious enemies of God. Christ redeemed us from the marketplace of sin. This is incomprehensible love. This is unfathomable love. This is immeasurable love. This, my beloved, is amazing love. And we can spend our life here on earth trying to scratch the surface of this and grasp this love, but we would still be amazed. The more you discover, the more you will be amazed. It never grows old. That's the deep, deep love of Jesus. Now he continues, he says, this love surpasses all knowledge. He's not saying that the love of Christ bypasses all knowledge. No. God's love entails knowledge. Paul prays for the people that they would be filled with knowledge. That's why I stand here week after week and open God's word and teach you from God's word. It's through the word of God that we are able to understand God's love. Otherwise, we would just stand here and give you some jokes and comedy and, 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 and mystical things and ring some bells and blow some smoke and help you understand the love of God. That's not the love of God. Colossians chapter 1 verse 10, Paul prays that we would bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. Biblical love is not mindless love. If love does not make you think, it is not love. Love enjoys ruminating on God's word, dissecting God's word, analyzing God's word, dwelling upon God's word, studying scripture, studying the love of Christ objectively and externally. So obviously he's not saying bypass knowledge. So what does it mean the love of Christ surpasses knowledge? Well, what Paul means when he says the love of Christ surpasses knowledge, he says Christ's love is so inexhaustible, Christ's love is so unsearchable, it is knowledge surpassing love. There's no word to describe the immensity of Christ's love for us. We cannot fully fathom this love. That's what Paul is trying to say. I mean, you'll try to spend all your life trying to understand this love, but there will be more and more of it as you try to discover it. It surpasses all of that, all of knowledge. Isaac Ratz wrote the song, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died. How often do we survey the wondrous cross? I've been to Grand Canyon multiple times. But it was not until I attempted to hike down the canyon that I got to experience the enormity of the canyons, about which I had no clue looking up from above. I had no clue what that was like. In the same way, folks, we are to scale the heights and the depths and the breadth and the length of Christ's love. And as you meditate on Christ's love, you'll be able to experience the incomprehensible love of Christ. And this is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, and this should be our prayer for other believers. Do you personally and experientially know the love of Christ? Are you spending time in God's Word each day? Are you taking time to meditate on the beautiful and wonderful words of Christ? Are you taking time to explore the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's love? Are you, my friend, surveying the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died?
I remember the first time I met my wife. I mean, spending time with her was not at all a difficult task. And it is not at all a difficult task right now. I enjoy more and more of it as days go by. Why? Because I'm captivated and I'm motivated by her love for me and by my love for her. I will rearrange everything in my life, my schedule to make time with her. This is the same with Christ. That Christ's love so motivates you. That as you gaze upon his wondrous cross, his, his love so motivates you that you have nothing else in life but to be captivated by that. And you make aside room, you make room in your life, you rearrange your schedules so that you can spend time with Christ. That's how you can be rooted and grounded in love. Let's come to the third heading, folks. And the third heading is found in 19b. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We've seen the word fullness before in Ephesians. Ephesians 1.23, the church is the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 3.16, we are filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 3.17, here we are filled with Christ. And now, 3.19, it says, being filled with the fullness of God. I mean, there's a Trinitarian aspect even in this prayer. Did you notice that? Being filled with the fullness of Christ, being filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and now being filled with the fullness of God. Paul is Trinitarian, even in his prayer. And Paul says here that we are to be filled with the fullness of God, the eternal creator God, the omniscient, almighty, all-powerful, sovereign God is filling me. What does that look like? I, I don't know. I, I understand it. It's the Greek word pleru. means total fullness. It means to be filled up completely. And by the way, the verb filled up or filled with is passive. That means I'm not the doer of the action. Someone outside of me is the doer of the action. That means God is the one who is bringing about the action of filling me up with the fullness of God. Make that? Get that? God is the one who is doing the work of filling me with the fullness of God. We are filled with God's fullness. So what does it mean? trying to understand it. It means maybe it, it, it kind of entails everything, but God is living in me. He's filling me with this person, his characteristics, his attributes. It's all dwelling inside of me. I mean, it doesn't make me co-equal with God. Paul is not praying that somehow you and I would be little gods. But when others look at us, that they would see a tangible expression of who God is in and through our lives. They would see the communicable attributes of God in us. Paul had mentioned earlier in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are the temple of God. And then he said we are the building of God. And then he said we are a house that God's creating. And in the Old Testament, as you see, God came in a Shekinah glory and he dwelt in the temple. He filled the temple with his glory. He was in the temple. In the same way, Paul is praying that the fullness of God would come and inhabit you and completely overflow you with the fullness. And as you are filled with the fullness of Christ, you would be holy like him. You would look like him. You would be a mirror image of him. You would be acting like him. You would be living like him. You would begin to love like him. You would be walking, talking image bearers of God, the great and loving God. And Paul is praying that the Ephesian church would be filled and be filled and be filled and be filled and be filled forever with the fullness of God. What is filling your life today? You would know what's filling your life today. Will you know what your priorities are? What is coming out of your life today? Do you see Christ's love coming out of your life today or is it love for self? Is it fear and anxiety? 
Or is it holy boldness and joy and peace in Christ? Is it anger and irritation and frustration over something that your spouse does? That you're pulling your hair and you said, I can't take it anymore. Or is it unconditional, sacrificial love overflowing for your spouse? Is it frustration or a lack of concern for fellow believers just because you don't like something they do or because of idiosyncrasies that you can't take it anymore? Or are you seeing an unconditional commitment to serve fellow believers patiently for the glory of God? To be filled with God means to be emptied of self. Could I say that again? To be filled with God means to be emptied of self. It's not you, but the others. How? Because you're filled with the fullness of God. Beloved, what is your primary prayer for your life today? Is it that you be strengthened in your inner man? Is it that you be rooted and grounded in love? Is it that you be filled with the fullness of God? And as you do that, you'd be able to pray that for fellow believers as well. That they, in turn, would be strengthened with the Holy Spirit. That they, in turn, would be rooted and grounded in love. That they, in turn, would be filled with the fullness of God. May I request you to make a commitment with God today. A commitment that you would begin praying for the church. A commitment that you will pray for the believers in the church. You want to fill these pews up? It begins with that prayer. Pray that the people would find it a priority to find church the local group of believers that they pray for and they're just earning to come in every Sunday to see the progressive growth, the spiritual growth that's happening in their life as a result of their, your prayer. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Isn't that amazing when you pray for someone through the week and you want to know how that someone is doing at the end of the week and you can see that happen in church? May God give you the grace to do this. I mean, you and I cannot do this on our own. This is why we need the gospel. This is why we need Savior. We need Christ. And as you come to the foot of the cross, you're praying, Lord, help me to be this person that will pray this prayer for your people. And keep in mind that you can only do this by the strength that God gives. That's why Philippians says, work out your salvation of fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you. And he will continue to work in you through the power of the Holy Spirit that is living in you, indwelling you, strengthening you. Father, we thank you for the opportunity given us, Lord, to look at the prayer of Paul. And Father, I know that one day in eternity we will understand this perfectly when we see you face to face. But until then, Lord, help us, Lord, to be men and women given to the task of prayer, to the habit of prayer, that we would pray without ceasing for the church, for the local believers that you brought into our lives. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.